All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all here this morning. Um, I'm thankful for the opportunity to be here with you on this Lord's Day and uh, getting to worship our, our great God and Savior this day. We'll be continuing in our um, study going through the book, The Christian Looks at Himself by Anthony Hokema. Last week we went through the introduction and chapter one, and so today we'll be turning to chapter two, which has a great title. Uh, the title of chapter two is The Exhilaration of Forgiveness. Um, so as you can gather from the title of this chapter, our focus today will be on the, the relief and the joy that believers find when considering God's grace toward them in the forgiveness of their sins and the removal of their guilt. That'll be a, a key topic that we continue to touch on today. Uh, just before we get into the lesson, however, I did want to take a moment to address um, something I said last week that was an error. I wanted to take a little bit of time to correct that. <clears throat> in, uh, in last week's lesson, uh, if you remember, if you were here for the lesson or if you've listened to it, uh, when we covered the introduction of the book, I uh, covered a section of the introduction where the author, Hokema, uh, raised concern over one of the hymns that his church was singing beneath the cross of Jesus. If you remember, he was uh, concerned about the lines that, <clears throat> that read, And from my smitten heart with tears, two wonders I confess, the wonders of his glorious love and my own worthlessness. We talked about how he didn't like the term worthlessness and that he preferred a more modern update to the hymn that they were using at the time that changed my own worthlessness to my unworthiness. And his concern, if you uh, were here um, or if you go back and listen to it, his main concern was maintaining that distinction between uh, the fact that we're unworthy of God's grace, but at the same time, we do have worth and value to our Redeemer. So he was concerned about the wording, but uh, I also, if you remember, pointed out that we sing the hymn, My Worth Is Not In What I Own, where we... Uh, uh, have an update to that phrase that says two wonders here that I confess my worth and my unworthiness. So you see sort of that balance being maintained there. Well, anyway, wh where I erred was that I made the comment that I, I didn't think we sang beneath the cross of Jesus here because I didn't remember singing it, but uh, that is not true. It was graciously pointed out to me that we do sing it here. Uh, we sing it uh, pretty rarely. I think we've only sang it once in the last few years but we will be singing it next Sunday. So we, we will have it. And uh, we do have in our uh, Trinity hymnals the original wording that Hokema took issue with, which we will not be changing the wording to the hymn. So anyway, wanted to point that out for everyone to correct that, uh, just to make that clear for everyone. But anyway, um, so going into the study on the book, uh, like I mentioned, if you were here last week, you'll recall that Hokema's main concern here is that he wants to make a biblical case that Christians ought to have a positive self-image because they have been born again and made new in Christ. So their positive self-image is, is found in Christ. We as Christians, those who've repented of sin and put our faith in Christ for salvation, um, we should have a great sense of self-worth, not because of anything inherently good in us, 
but because God has shown his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We talked about how we, particularly those of us in the Reformed camp, are, are generally quick to acknowledge our sinfulness um, and our uh, unworthiness before God, our need for um, a Savior, the fact that we're deserving of God's wrath. Um, and so Hokema, being from a Reformed background as well, is really just trying to make sure that we're always maintaining a balance and we're, we're not only focusing on the fall, but we're also remembering redemption, that we have been redeemed in Christ, and that we have value to him, and we ought to walk in that knowledge that ought to stir us up to a greater love for Christ and obedience toward him as we see that um, we are of great worth to him. Uh, then in last week's lesson, we also looked at, in chapter 1, at uh, Paul's self-image. So we were focused on a number of familiar New Testament passages, uh, passages where Paul refers to himself as chief of sinners, right, or as least of the apostles. And what we were focused on was that Paul doesn't do that just to beat himself up. He doesn't do it just to brood over the fact that he was a wretched sinner. He always points these things out uh, in service of elevating God's grace and Christ's patience and kindness toward him and God's sovereignty. He uses himself as the ultimate example of a wicked and depraved man and shows that God can use even the worst of sinners like Paul in order to accomplish his good purposes in this world. And so that's what Paul's point is. It's not just a an instance of him beating himself up or, or being overly self-deprecating. Now in chapter 2, we turn to the matter of what Scripture teaches us about what the way a believer should look at himself, specifically when it comes to the question of sin and guilt. Hokema is concerned about Christians developing an unhealthy negative self-image in this book, and his concern here is that, as he puts it in the book, nothing contributes so much to a negative self-image as a deep feeling of guilt. Now, guilt is something that we all are familiar with. We know exactly what it means when we talk about having guilt or feeling guilt. So what we're going to do is spend some time today walking through God's Word. And we'll look at a number of passages from Scripture in order to better understand what God's Word has to say about guilt, about feelings of guilt, and how this should shape the Christian's view of himself or herself. All right, so <clears throat> going into the chapter here, we'll acknowledge at the start a couple of things. When we talk about guilt, we tend to use that word in a couple of different ways, right? In our language, guilt is used in a couple different ways. Um, in one sense, guilt can be described as a property of someone who has done something wrong. It's something they've incurred, right? We use the term that we, or we have incurred guilt, or we have guilt, or we're carrying guilt. It means we're guilty of doing something wrong. That's one way we use the word. The other way we tend to use the word guilt is really referring more toward feelings of guilt, uh, when we're talking about feeling guilty, 
um, we've done something wrong and now we feel guilty about it. Or you know, maybe we even just ate too much dessert and we feel guilty about it. But that's the other way that we use the word guilt. We'll, we'll look at both of those uses as we walk through this study today. <clears throat> Actual guilt and feelings of guilt. Now, when we look around at our society, we might be tempted to think that feelings of guilt really aren't much of a problem these days, right? That the bigger problem is that people are encouraged to pursue whatever passions or desires they have and not feel any sense of guilt for it. And this is true. This is a fair point. People certainly are encouraged to sin, you know, to their heart's desire with, with no guilt. But as the author points out, it would be a mistake to think that guilt is not actually a problem in our society today or that people don't feel guilt. The fact is we've been made in God's image and we've been given the light of nature so that even unregenerate men know that there is a moral law and they know that they're guilty of breaking it. And this causes people to feel guilt even if they don't want to acknowledge that law that they've broken. As we know from Romans 1, it's not that men don't know about God, but rather that they do know him, but they suppress that knowledge in their unrighteousness. As Paul says in, in Romans chapter 1, going through verses 19 through 23, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Since God is the divine lawgiver and God's moral law is founded in his very character, we should expect that men who suppress their knowledge of him will also attempt to suppress their knowledge of his law, of his character. But when we go to Romans chapter 2, Paul addresses this specifically when he's talking about the, the Gentiles who did not have the scriptures, who did not have God's law written down in front of them. In chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, Paul writes, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And so we understand from that that men have this inert knowledge of God's law. It's within them. They don't have a full understanding. They certainly don't accept it and obey it. But there is enough light within them to see that they are guilty of breaking God's law. And they feel it. Their conscience bears witness to this, right, is what Paul says. 
So it's for this reason that we know that even unregenerate men are convicted by their conscience of their sin and guilt before God. And this accords with what we observe on a daily basis, does it not? We have a massive therapeutic drug industry. You see commercials, every other commercial for some type of drug to make you happy or feel better. Uh, We have, you you can find endless polls and reports on the increasing numbers of uh, reported depression or increasing numbers of suicides. And these are some of the effects of that suppression of the knowledge of God. When we don't acknowledge him and his law and we don't respond with repentance and faith, ultimately we suffer for it. If we don't understand what sin is, if we aren't regenerated by the Holy Spirit, blessed with the gifts of faith and repentance from sin, we'll seek to deal with sin in ways that are unbiblical and ultimately ineffective. The guilt that men feel because of their sin can only be removed when God graciously forgives that sin. As long as men suppress the truth about God, their sin will not be forgiven and their guiltiness will persist. So for Christians, it's imperative that we have a right understanding of sin and guilt, and that is founded upon Scripture. So when we turn to God's Word, what we find is that the problem of guilt is actually far worse than we thought, far worse than what the world would tell you. Not only are we indeed guilty, we've incurred guilt, but we're guilty of sinning not just against other people. Ultimately, we're guilty of sinning against God himself. And David confesses this, you know, this is one of the most clear uh, expressions of this in scripture, but in in Psalm 51, if you recall, uh, David had sinned by committing both adultery and then murder, so he had sinned against other people, and yet in Psalm 51, in verse 4, he says, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. That same statement is true for all of us. Our sin is ultimately against God, a holy and righteous God. And he is just in condemning us and punishing us for that sin. We also know that all men share in this guilt of having sinned against God. Paul quotes from Psalm 14 in Romans chapter 3 in that very familiar passage where he says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So to summarize, all men everywhere are under sin. And that sin is ultimately against a holy and righteous God. So that's bad news. Given that we all have sinned against an infinitely holy God, we're all infinitely guilty before him and deserving of infinite punishment and God's pouring out his wrath upon us. This is true guilt. And since we're infinitely guilty, 
The only way this guilt can be removed is by a perfect atoning sacrifice, an infinitely perfect atoning sacrifice. And this is why our Lord Jesus alone was able to atone for our sins in his death on the cross. As the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, with no sin or blemish, he was able to pay the penalty for our sin in full. No other sacrifice would have been sufficient. It had to be Christ, because only he's perfect and righteous. Only he was able to perfectly fulfill God's law on our behalf, obtaining for, a, for us a perfect righteousness, which he blesses his elect with. And only he was able to fully atone for our sins in his death on the cross, satisfying God's wrath and bringing us peace with God. This double imputation, our sins imputed to Christ, his righteousness imputed to us, this is what we read of in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So here our guilt is not only removed, our guilt is taken away, but it's also replaced. Our guilt is removed completely and it's replaced with Christ's perfect righteousness. This concept of substitutionary atonement is uh, highlighted by Paul back in Romans chapter 3 again in verses 23 through 26 where he writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The word propitiation there is referring to appeasing, appeasing God's wrath, where believers were previously under God's wrath, and Christ, through the shedding of his blood, has taken that wrath upon himself and restored his people to fellowship and favor with God. So in Christ's atonement, God maintains his justice, not by overlooking sin, but rather by pouring out his wrath on sin on Jesus Christ, the substitute for his people. At the same time, God's people are justified or counted righteous by God since their sins have been imputed to Christ and his righteousness has been imputed to them. The result is what we see in verse 26 there. God is now both just having punished sin and the justifier having granted forgiveness to his people. And so it is that the scriptures not only show us the true meaning of guilt, that we've sinned against a holy and righteous God, but they also show us the only way to deal with that guilt. We cannot deal with our guilt. Only Christ can deal with our guilt. Hear this, Christian. If you're weighed down by feelings of guilt, come to Christ. Come to him in repentance and faith. 
and find forgiveness of sin and freedom from guilt. Anyone who's not trusted upon Christ, hear this. There's only one way to deal with your guilt, and that is to repent of sin and to put faith in Christ for salvation, for forgiveness of sin, for the removal of guilt. Christ can and will remove your guilt. He will remove it from your account. So come to him in repentance and faith and find rest for your soul. So what does all this have to do with our self-image? Well, Christians, those who have been redeemed from sin by Christ have their guilt removed and therefore should live as those who have been reconciled to God. But there's a problem that confuses this issue and often reintroduces guilt into the conscience of the Christian, and that is the reality of indwelling sin. Once we've been saved, once we're justified, our sin does not just go away. It continues to cling to us, and we still fight against it each and every day. This Holy Spirit by God's grace, works within us to help us to fight against sin and to grow in holiness. But that sin is always still there, and so we continue to transgress against God's law. And when we do that, when we break God's law, we often feel guilt over that. And those feelings of guilt, if not dealt with properly, can build over time, especially if we're not walking closely with God, if we're not living in the word, if we're not continually in prayer, that guilt, because we haven't repented of our sins, can build. And now we're talking about that second type of guilt, right? That, those feelings of guilt. Because we've already seen that our guilt has been removed, but those feelings of guilt can come back when we're dealing with our ongoing sinfulness. And these feelings of guilt are not inherently a bad thing by the way. They're actually a good thing when they produce repentance. A direct example of this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, in verses 10 and 11. There, in the context of the passage, Paul is talking about how he and others have been refreshed by the report they've gotten from Titus about the Corinthian church. Uh, Paul had mentions that in his previous letter he was rough on the Corinthians and he's refreshed when Titus has gone to Corinth and then comes and meets him and informs him that the church at Corinth was repentant, that they were mourning over their sin and rather than being angry with Paul they were longing to see him again and so Paul's refreshed about this and so it's in this context that he makes this statement He says there in verses 10 and 11, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Here we see Paul drawing a distinction between godly grief on the one hand and worldly grief on the other. Godly grief, uh, in other words, grief in the heart of a believer 
that has been made new by the Holy Spirit, that type of godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Worldly grief, grief in the heart of a non-believer who persists in rebellion against God or who has not been converted to faith by the Holy Spirit, this grief does not produce repentance. It does not lead to an acknowledgement of sin, a hating and forsaking of that sin, and a turning to God in faith for forgiveness. There is no hope of salvation in worldly grief because it doesn't result in a turning to Christ in faith. How terrifying and how hopeless is a godly grief. All you have is guilt, but you, or sorry, a worldly grief. All you have is guilt, but you have no way to deal with it because you're not going to the one who can deal with it, Christ. And this passage is a wonderful one to come back to and, and remind ourselves of because it helps us in understanding how to right, rightfully deal with feelings of guilt. The word used here is grief, but in that context of the passage that we talked about, what he's talking about is a feeling of, of guilt, uh, or a feeling of um, guilt over having done something wrong. It's the same concept as feelings of guilt. When Christians feel guilt or grief over having done wrong, it ought to lead to repentance. And when we repent and draw near to God, he's faithful to forgive us and to restore us in a clear conscience and a confidence in our salvation. So we must guard ourselves against worldly grief. If we've been delivered out of this world and into the kingdom of God, then we should no longer grieve like the world grieves. We do have a hope of salvation, Jesus Christ. And when we are guilty of sin, we are called home to come to the Lord in repentance and faith. That's the only way to salvation. And it's the only way for a clear conscience and the removal of guilt. But even when we grieve well, even when we are repentant of sin, it can be difficult to truly let go of our feelings of guilt. And sometimes this is because indwelling sin makes us feel remorse and drives us to repentance, like we talked about. But in other instances, Christians sometimes continue to struggle with assurance of salvation, right? We've all had struggles in that area. We tend to question our status with God and it's these instances that Hokema is primarily concerned about in the latter half of this chapter. He makes the point that we need to trust in God's promises and to have faith in God that he indeed has removed our guilt. If we've been saved, if we are in Christ, our guilt has been removed completely. We need to have faith in this in order to avoid having an unnecessarily negative self-image, an overly negative self-image. Yes, we continue to sin, and we need to persist in repentance when we do. But if we're in Christ, our guilt has been removed. Jesus has already put it away. And so we ought to walk as those who've been set free from sin, and we're now slaves to righteousness walking in humble obedience to our Lord. It's not uncommon for those who truly have been saved to 
to look at the wickedness and the depravity of their own sin and to think, surely the Lord cannot forgive this or that. I'm sure we've all been there. Um, there are certain things we've all done in our lives that we, we look back and think, I, I just, I don't know how the Lord could forgive this. But he does. The blood of Christ is sufficient to forgive any and every sin. It does forgive every sin. And so we have to remember that. Uh, Hokema spends the second half of the chapter, like I mentioned, listing off scripture after scripture, just as an encouragement to Christians, as anyone who might be struggling with uh, ongoing feelings of guilt. Um, this is encouraging, and uh, it's a good reminder that our guilt has been removed completely, that we are free from sin, we've been made alive in Jesus Christ. And so we'll walk through some of those uh, scripture verses. In Psalm 32, starting off in verse 1 and 2, David writes about the blessed man whose sins are forgiven. David writes there, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Beloved, if you're in Christ, this blessing is true for you. The Lord does not count your sin against you. In Psalm 103, David praises God once more for total forgiveness of sin. I'll read there verses 1 through 3 and then 10 through 12. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. Then in verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, Isaiah writes in chapter 3, uh, in chapter 43, excuse me, verse 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Praise God. In ver chapter 44, verses 22, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. We see this idea here of blotting out sin or transgression, the idea of completely covering it up so that it is gone. It's, you can't see it anymore. It's not there. When we go to the New Testament, of course, we have many many instances where we see this glorious and full forgiveness that we have in Christ. Certainly in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We see there Jesus uh, telling us that he delivers us from death to life. He says something similar in chapter 5, verse 24 of the same gospel in John. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed 
from death to life. In Acts chapter 13, Paul in his sermon to the Jews at Antioch of Pisidia, he affirms that deliverance from guilt cannot be found in the keeping of the law, but only in faith in Jesus Christ. In verses 38 and 39 in Acts chapter 13, Paul says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Christ sets us free from sin. And of course, we see this message of freedom from sin and peace with God being proclaimed in Paul's epistles, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, that, that um, well-known verse, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. It doesn't mean we won't feel guilt over ongoing sin, but as we continue to come to him in repentance and faith, we have peace with God. We are no longer at enmity with him. That should, that should cause great joy in our lives. Of course, in Romans chapter 8, one of the, um, one of the you know, great uh, chapters in all of Scripture for encouragement, spiritual encouragement, um, at, at the very beginning and then back toward the end, we see this, this concept of there being no condemnation for, for sinners. Of course, in, in verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then Paul comes back to that later in verses 33 and 34 when he says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who's going to condemn them? Who can stand against them when Christ stands for them? In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, we see Jesus removing our guilt through his atonement. We see there, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus puts away sin. It's gone. The Apostle John conveys to believers assurance of the pardon of their sins in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. It says there, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then later in the book of Revelation, John uh, revisits this theme of freedom from sin in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. He says there, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to, God, to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so we see there both that we've been freed from sin and we see the ultimate reason why, so that God would be glorified forever and ever. Amen. And so we see from all of these passages God's love for his people demonstrated in his forgiveness of their sin, not forgiveness they deserved, forgiveness that they've received by grace. And Christian, when you experience times and seasons of doubt, Go to the Word. 
find in it the glorious truth that your guilt has been removed. Your sins have been blotted out if you are in Christ. Repent of sin and trust in Christ for forgiveness. Embrace the peace that you have with God. See yourself as he sees you, as one redeemed and united to Christ. Walk in this, Christian. Follow the lead of your Savior and go to God continually in prayer. Live in the word. This is how we gain clear sight of who we are, a correct self-image. All men are guilty sinners, but those who are in Christ no longer carry this guilt. God has removed their transgressions from them as far as the east is from the west. So rest in this, dear Christian, and walk in obedience to the Lord out of a gratitude for the redemption that you have in Christ. All right, well, that concludes our lesson today.